All right. Okay, that's better. Okay, let us get started. This is lecture three. Lecture three in this series on how to read and interpret clinical studies. And it is on the cost of cancer drugs and some cancer drug policy basics. I'm Vinay Prasad again. I'm a hemonc doctor here at SFGH, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Epi and Biostats. I'm joined by some colleagues who are on the Zoom, and uh, maybe they'll say something too. All right, everything you see or hear today, you can learn more about. If you're interested in cancer drug policy, this is the book for you, Malignant. Um, there are some pertinent videos on the YouTube channel um, about cancer drug policy. They're under a playlist, I think, called Lectures. Uh, plenary Session Podcast, it's returning to its roots. It's going to be all cancer drug policy, and I'm active on Twitter. All right, I'll skip that. Uh, okay, skip that. Okay, 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 here we go. The first thing to know. Um, the cost of cancer drugs, this is by per month of a cancer drug. So depending on the year it was launched, and it is going up and up and up. So the figure on the left shows that, somebody has to mute themselves. The figure on the left shows that the cost of cancer drugs is rising five times faster than other classes of medications. So cancer drug price per month of treatment is going up and up. On the right, you see, nicely shown, if a drug was approved between 1975 and 1979, it was $129 per month. It was approved between 1990 and 94, it was $1,000 a month. 95 to 99, it was $1,700 a month. But in recent years, it has gone up and up and up. This is already maybe five, six years out of date. It says about $10,000 a month. We're nearing $20,000 a month. That's the ballpark we're at now. All of these figures are inflation adjusted, so they represent the same relative purchasing power uh, today versus many years ago. They're rising much faster than inflation. They're rising faster than almost anything. And I'll show you one more comparison. The other thing you need to know is that drug prices are not fixed. They change over the course of the, the patent. Um, these are six examples of drugs that are branded, which means that only one company is allowed to sell this drug. It's not yet generic. And this shows you the price per month of these drugs over time. And what you see is the industry has a, I think, standard practice of increasing the price of a drug about 9% per year. And this is like the old adage, why does the frog not jump out of the pot of boiling water? Because you heat the water slowly. And we're heating the water slowly. And so this means that, you know, the same drug is costing more and more as time goes on. And it's rather dramatic, I think. You know, some cases nearly a doubling of price. This is a very interesting graph from a paper by Stacy's Zena and colleagues. Stacy's now at Vanderbilt University. And in the teal bar, you see the price of imatinib, which is a very potent inhibitor of BCR able for CML. And it's the price of imatinib per month, uh, depending on the year. And you see when Novartis initially launched it, it was almost $4,000 a month. They had a little bit of a discount the next year because it was uh, in the news for being very pricey. And then slowly over time, they're ramping up their price, ramping it up, 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 until 2015, where it's nearly $10,000 a month. And then... The patent ran out, and the generic manufacturer started making the drug. People always say that when a drug goes generic, it's not going to be very expensive anymore. But as you can see right here, the generic price, although it is a discount compared to the branded price, it's still nearly twice as high as the initial launch price. So we cranked up the price, and even though we're having discounts with generic drugs, you know we're still paying more than what we paid when the product initially came out. And this was true even in 2017. 
finally Mark Cuban got in the business and he has really drastically undercut this drug. But, you know, I think the take-home point here is that generics can cost more than the initial launch price of a drug because they cranked up the price over time. But one other thing happened, and this is also shown in the, in the paper, from 2001 to 2017, there are different choices for someone with CML. Initially, there was just imatinib for five, six years. Then the FDA approved nilotinib and desatinib. Those are next generation or me too drugs. Nilotinib and desatinib have never been proven to make you live longer. They've never been proven to improve your quality of life. But what they do do is increase the fraction of people who achieve a deep molecular remission. They lower that PCR transcript even more than imatinib. And largely based on that, people have used this preferentially. And you can see that the market share for nilotinib and desatinib over time has grown. And it's grown to well over 50% market share by 2017. But what does this mean? This means there's two challenges for generics. Number one, you know, they've cranked up the price. So even though the generics are cheaper, they're still more than the launch price. Number two, by the time the generic comes around, only about a third of people are even taking the parent drug. Two thirds of people have moved on to the next generation alternatives and there ain't no generic for that. And so generics are not going to substantively lower cancer drug spending because we are shifting to other branded drugs. And two, the generic price is often higher than initial launch price. So I think this paper shows that rather nicely. Here you see it together. The slide is already a little bit out of date, but you know it wasn't that long ago in the late 1990s where we had, for the first time ever, a single cancer drug that earned a billion dollars in a year, and that was paclitaxel. And that was an important mark because a billion dollars a year was historically considered the blockbuster drug market. And blockbuster drugs are interesting in the sense because you, to be a blockbuster drug, people believed that you had to do something to take care of high blood pressure or hypertension or diabetes. You had to take care of a disease that was very, very common. Well, now finally, we have billion-dollar drugs for diseases that are really, really rare. Even rare diseases can make a billion dollars a year. So the entire model of drug development, spending all these resources to go after common conditions, has shifted. And now they spend a lot of money on rare and cancer drug development, rare disease and cancer drug development. And this was just a few years ago, but you can see you know, rituximab is making $8 billion a year. Now, I believe pembrolizumab is making nearly $8 billion a quarter. And so you have explosive sales of cancer drugs. They're extremely lucrative. Competition doesn't lower prices. You know, I showed you that graph of imatinib. And even though nilotinib and desatinib were two branded drugs that came on market, the price of all three of them marched lockstep together. There was no comp competition based on price. And to my knowledge, among branded drugs in the cancer drug space, I have never seen a drug compete on the basis of price. They always compete on the basis of we improve some other, you know, molecular endpoint. We have better quality of life based on the questionnaire that we have designed for ourselves. We have some advantage, but they never say that advantage is lower price. I've never seen that among branded drugs. And I think that's a problem. That's why the prices of all these drugs are going up and up and up. Uh, this was an interesting thing. Many years ago, not many years ago, five years ago, there was that Martin Scarelli. Martin Scarelli acquired a drug, pyrimethamine, that was used to treat, um, uh, 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 that was used often in HIV patients to treat um, you know, certain uh, infectious sequelae. And he realized that through a whole bunch of sort of legalistic reasons, um, that 
they had sort of an exclusivity of selling pyrimethamine. And so he increased the price, I think, thousandfolds. And he took a pill that was a few pennies to, you know, uh, uh, you know, $25 a pill or something. And he made a, a ton of money. And then he was investigated for, you know, predatory pricing. Well, a few years ago, we were interested in this, which is, you know, who is increasing their price? Who's lowering their price? Do new drugs cost more than old ones? And so we picked drugs, I believe, in 2010 and 2015. And we asked between 2010 and 2015, how much did the price of the drug change adjusted for inflation? And the drugs over on the right are some of the ones that had the greatest price increase. And the drugs over on the left had the greatest price decrease. And so you can see gemcitabine had a huge price decrease in this five-year period of time. Why? Probably it lost its patent and became generic. But what are the drugs on the right with the greatest price increase? Are those the newest drugs? And the answer is, as shown here, this is the year of drug approval. And the y-axis is the change in price over those five years. And you can see it wasn't the newer drugs that had the greatest price increases. It was the oldest drugs that through some perversity in the market finally had some type of exclusivity that allowed the manufacturer to crank up the price. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. And so you saw things like oral cyclophosphamide have a huge price increase, 300% increase, which actually impacts our patients, even though this drug's been around for 40, 50 years. It makes no sense. These largest pharmaceutical firms are, um, you know, they always say that it takes a lot of money in R&D we're going to talk about. Well, any way you slice it, these firms are making a lot of money. Their profit margin is routinely double-digit profit margins, often on par with oil and natural gas. Why does that matter? Because although the companies wish to portray what they do as very risky, if you consistently make a double-digit profit margin, then you, you may have a risk with individual drug development programs, but your portfolio-level risk is actually rather buffered. You guarantee yourself good profits in the long haul across your portfolio of drugs, and that's what we see from the companies. Many years ago, we did this, and we are going to update it soon, and I wish I had those slides from, um, from Jordan because we have the updated figures. We looked at a set of cancer drugs um, and we asked ourselves, can we predict the price of the drugs? And you would think, I think if you were thinking logically, that drugs that work better cost more and drugs that are more novel that have a new mechanism of action cost more than old drugs. Well, the first thing we did was we went through five years of drug approvals and we found that about 60% of the drugs were Me Too drugs. They were next in class drugs. They were Coke and Pepsi. 21 or 40% of the drugs were novel. They were the first time we ever inhibited some target, or they were a new mechanism of inhibiting that target. So if we used a small molecule, there was a monoclonal antibody. But you get the picture. This is the rough breakdown. And the first thing we found was that there was absolutely no difference in price between novel and next in class. They were both around $100,000 per year of treatment. The next thing we looked at was when the FDA approves drugs, they often approve on one of three reasons. They approve on it can shrink tumors. And I think we talked about this in lecture two, um, you know, or lecture one. Um, a response is what fraction of people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage? And we found about a third of drugs, I think the blue here is response, a third are approved on the basis of response that, you know, we know they shrink tumors. Another third are approved on the basis of progression-free survival, which we talked about in lecture one, which is the time until you either have new lesions, the tumor gets bigger, uh, or the patient dies, and, and those are roughly it. And so about a third are the time until that, that surrogate endpoint. And, and then the third reason they approve drugs is that they make you live longer or live better, and that's the third as well. And we compared the price, 
And you would expect that drugs that have been proven to make you live longer will cost the most, and the other two categories will cost less. But what we found was that drugs that shrink tumors cost the most, and the other two categories cost the same. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, that the weakest evidence has the highest price tag. And that is what you see in the market. And we've repeated this now, updating it for 2022, which we will be submitting shortly. And I think, if I correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, I think we find roughly that there's no correlation between any of these categories and uh, drug price. You can type in the chat. That's correct. You're nodding your head. Okay. Um, this is a regression analysis that shows, that asks, like, among the drugs that improve PFS and among the drugs that improve overall survival, do drugs that, yeah, Allison says for the most part, that's correct. For the most part. There's probably something I'm getting wrong, but we'll find out when we review this before we publish. Um, among the drugs that improve overall survival, do the drugs that really, really improve overall survival, do they cost more commensurately than the drugs that just kind of modestly increase survival over here on the left of the graph? And as you can see from the figure, there is some relationship here. But here's what this, these numbers mean. The R squared is the coefficient of determination. It tells you what percent of the variability in drug price is explained by the variability in survival improvement. And the answer is 16%. So in other words, 84% 80 of the variability in drug price is not explained by the improvement in OS. That's a lot, unexplained. Very little is explained. The next thing is the equation itself tells you, if you bring a drug to the US market, you get about 80 grand per year. And then for every 1% improvement in overall survival, we'll toss in an extra 900 bucks. But most of the money you're getting is just from coming to the US market. And I think that's the way to interpret these, these graphs, um, which means that rather very little of the price is explained by the benefit. So the cost of drugs is not explained by novelty or the cost of R&D. It's not explained by the regulatory endpoint used for approval. And it's not explained by the percentage improvement in the endpoint. So what does explain it? The answer is what the market will bear. It's really only explained by what the last drug company was able to price their drug at, and the newest company is just pricing it a little bit higher. And like the frog in the pot, they're turning up the heat slowly. And there are very little downward pressures in the marketplace to reduce the price. And even insurers don't have that incentive. I just make this point. Sometimes people tell me that insurers, you know, they're the bad people. They want to prevent spending, and so they keep cutting things. Well, I think there's a misconception there, actually which is, one, just setting aside the moral thing, I'm just talking about what their goals are. An insurance company is only allowed to get 20% profit on money that flows through the company. They gotta spend 80% of the money on healthcare, they can only keep 20% of the profits. That's by the Affordable Care Act, it caps their profit margin. So somebody type in the chat, let me ask you, if I tell you you can only eat 20% of the pizza I'm about to order, I'm ordering a pizza, you're very hungry, you can only eat 20% of the pizza, not a percentage more. What size pizza should I order? What size pizza should I order? You're really hungry. You can only eat 20% of the pizza. Can't eat 25%. What size pizza? Extra large. That's right. Extra large. So you see, actually, by capping insurance profit margins as profit on revenue or the medical loss ratio, as they call it, you actually incentivize them to grow bigger. In fact, what they want is to have more GDP pumped into healthcare over the long haul. But they have another incentive, which is that year to year, they don't want a lot of variability. They don't want 
a sudden outlay that they have not anticipated, which will not be reflected in their premiums. They want to be competitive against the other companies. They cannot have variability year to year. But in the long haul, they have no real incentive to cut spending. In fact, their only incentive is to grow the pie. So when people tell me things like it's the insurance company that is blah, 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 trying to cut their health care, I, I actually think they may misunderstand what's going on. Because the insurance company, I have no doubt that they're doing some things that are shady to prevent year-to-year variability. They may not like when some doctor orders a ton of PET scans, and they may make it very difficult for that doctor to order a lot of the PET scans. To be honest with you, a lot of the times they're making it difficult to order something. It really is not indicated, and I know the doctor likes to tell themselves it's indicated, but it really is not indicated. You probably don't need a PET scan every two weeks on a patient with metastatic disease, although some people you know, do it quite frequently. Um, but... That the, the, but cost containment over the long haul is not their goal, and they actually don't profit from that. In fact, they'll profit more if all the whole pie gets bigger. I think that's a problem, actually. Um, there's some more complicated financial arrangements that have changed a little bit, but that's a core deficiency. Okay. And, of course, the companies. The companies profit more, you know, if you buy more of their product. And, of course, actually the investigators. Yeah, the people running it at the universities, they profit more if you sell more product because most of their careers are tied to the particular clinical trials of the drug company. And the journals actually, the journals actually make more money if more companies publish more papers because the predominant revenue source at top journals is reprint sales, which are purchased by the drug companies often after a pivotal clinical trial. So pretty much in the ecosystem of drug pricing and all healthcare spending, everybody gets rich the more we spend on healthcare. The only people who get poorer are average people whose real wage is stifled by healthcare spending. The average take-home income has stagnated since the 70s, and people just lose more of their income in terms of healthcare premiums, the quote-unquote benefits we're getting. But many of those benefits are being used to fund products that don't actually help us live longer or live better. So if you take money from a lot of average people and you suck it into healthcare and you deliver some healthcare that doesn't actually make them live longer or live better, what do you actually have? You don't have a medical product. You have a financial product. You're selling a financial service that takes money from lots of people and aggregates it in the hands of shareholders. So it's actually sort of a, it's actually a regressive tax on average people to consolidate wealth into the wealthy. That's what it is. It may have a side effect, a rare adverse effect of improving their health, but a lot of it is that. Now, this is for things that just don't work, but there's something which I talked about in the first two lectures, but there are some things that do work. So let's talk about that. What about value? What is value? Value typically means some relationship between the benefit a product provides mitigated by its cost and toxicities. What is the downside? What's the upside versus what's the downside? That's value. And one good way to measure value is a dollar per quality adjusted life year. That means how many bucks do we have to spend at one good year of life back to an average person? Let's talk about a drug that's really great. This is Gleevec. This is the best drug we've had in the last 30 years. Maybe also because it's the most simple cancer. It's a very dumb cancer. It has one real driver mutation, and that mutation is BCR-able fusion protein. And when you take a small molecule and you inhibit that protein, you have a good result. And so this is a figure from Sweden. And I'll just do the one on the, on the left. This is a man who's 55 years old who was diagnosed with CML. And if he was diagnosed in 1974 in Sweden, he's 55 when he's diagnosed, his life expectancy is shown in the yellow line. And if he's diagnosed in 1980, it's this high. So he goes from maybe three years to five years. 
And then as time goes on, his life expectancy gets a lot better. The blue line is the life expectancy of an age sex-matched control. A man, 55, who didn't have a CML diagnosis. That's the blue line. And the gap between the blue and the yellow is the years of life lost. That's what we call the YLL. The years of life lost. It's an important figure. Important figure. Often misunderstood, but it is an important figure. Um, okay. As you can see, clearly, that something has closed this gap and they closed it entirely. And this is what you want to see in healthcare. You want to see there's a disease that had a huge decrement in survival, and now it's almost normal life expectancy with that disease. That's amazing. That's medical marvels. This is a great drug. And the answer is it was this drug, one drug that did it. But this drug was approved in 2001, and yet the curve starts to bend in the years prior to the approval. Does anyone in the chat have an idea? Why does the curve... Look carefully at the figure. Why does the curve bend upwards in the years prior to approval? You can have, there are many hypotheses, but one is right. Uh, number one hypothesis, good. Results from clinical trials. It's a good hypothesis, but I'll tell you why it's not the answer. One, to my knowledge, the ongoing clinical trials of imatinib prior to 2001 were largely in the United States and Finland. They were not conducted in Sweden. Okay, that's one, that's one point. Um, the second point I would make about trials is that if you look across a disease, of all the people with the disease, maybe less than 3% of people will be on a trial. So how can a 3%, even if they got the drug early, it's not enough to pull up the survival curve of everybody. Okay, the other, the other point, better screening. This is a great point. I actually think uh, this person is correct. That not, not for this particular part of the curve, but for the early part of the curve. If you look early in the curve, there is an improvement in the mortality of this disease, even without there being any different therapies. What is that? I think that's partly supportive care, partly more CBCs. The more CBCs you draw on a population, you will improve the five-year survival of, 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 of CML because you're gonna catch it sooner. The more you draw blood, the more you catch it sooner, the more you catch it sooner, the more you elevate five-year survival, the more you elevate that time with the disease. So I think that that is part of it. It's a lead time bias. Hype. Uh, I don't think hype. I think there's a real answer. And the answer is, and the x-axis year of diagnosis, Imagine that man diagnosed in 1997. What happened to him? Maybe 25% of them would be dead by 2001 because they don't got the new drug. But among the 75% alive in 2001, they start taking that pill and their life expectancy is so transformed, they literally improve the curve in the years preceding the approval. And so I think that's why it actually bends it in the years prior to approval. Okay. If you looked at the price in 2016 of that drug, imatinib, and you said, what was the dollar per quality adjusted life year? And I showed you the price in 2016. This is by Rena Conti and colleagues in the JNCI. They say the dollar for one quality adjusted life year was 72,000 buckaroos. $72,000 to add one good year of life. Why do I show you this? Because this drug is priced on par with drugs of its era. And now the drugs just cost more. Two, the drug offers the greatest benefit of any drug in the last 35 years. And it has a dollar per quality of $72,000. So anytime somebody tells you some cancer drug has a dollar per quality less than that, you've got to doubt them. 
You have to doubt them because how could their dollar per quality be better when the best drug was one in was $72,000 a quality? How you better? Often you've gamed the analysis. Allison, I don't think I have this in the slide, but Allison published a paper. Maybe type in the chat where that, or put the link in the chat. But this was a paper on cost-effectiveness analysis done by the industry versus by nonprofit funders in cancer drugs. And pretty much the industry had a massively elevated odds ratio of finding cost-effectiveness. Was it 20, Allison? It was something huge. I think it was a JAMA Network open paper. Allison will put the link in the chat. 40. 40 was the odds ratio. My God. Smoking and lung cancer is 20. It says double the, double the odds ratio. It's crazy. It's the highest one I've ever seen, which tells you something, that the industry knows how to perform dollar per quality analyses that suit their preconceived notions. Okay. Now, the average cancer drug is not a Gleevec. It's not that good. It merely has a modest survival benefit. On the bottom is the gain in overall survival of 71 consecutive drugs approved in cancer. This is FOHO and colleagues. And what you see here is that the missing bars mean we don't know. And the actual size of the column is 2.1 months, meaning that this is very modest, very modest gains in survival. So what do you think the dollar per quality is of a $200,000 a year medicine that gives you two-month survival benefit? It's not going to be $72,000. It's going to be much, much worse. The other thing you need to know is what is a threshold that makes sense? Well, for many years, uh, the National Institutes of Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom they set a threshold of, we'll pay for anything that costs less than one year of dialysis. Because one year of dialysis for somebody who needs dialysis is a one-year life-saving event. So is anything less than that we're going to pay for? Anything more than that we're not going to pay for? And the answer is, that was around $66,000 a year. So even Gleevec would be cutting it close. But of course, in the UK, they would negotiate a lower price for Gleevec. And now that Gleevec is generic and Mark Cuban inserted himself in the fray, it is certainly cost-effective. It's lower than that for sure now. But in Western nations, like or in, in richer nations, well, not richer, we're not richer. I would just say in nations that are more willing to spend, that's the right way to put it, in nations that are more willing to spend money, health economists say we should be willing to spend $100,000 or $200,000 a life year. And that's what I think right-of-center economists say in the United States, not left-of-center, right-of-center economists say that. But even by that threshold, many of our drugs are incredibly poor value, pertuzumab. $775,000 per quality. Regorafenib, $900,000 per quality. And a Flibercept is infinity because it costs more than an alternative that works just the same. Infinity. That's a bit too much. Can a society spend a million dollars to add a quality just of life year back? I think it's untenable. A society will bankrupt itself. I was reading about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and I learned that Rome collapsed when half the days were holidays in Rome. We might collapse when half of GDP spending is on healthcare. You know, you never know. Or sooner, the way things are going. Or sooner. Wish I lived outside the city limits these days. Wish I was outside the city limits. Okay. The value of innovation. This was an analysis that was put forth by a group from Tufts. And here's what they say. If you look across all the drugs and the heme malignancies, this is how it breaks out. These drugs have a dollar per quality of one in, uh, of twenty thousand dollars, twenty to forty thousand dollars, forty to sixty thousand dollars, sixty to ninety nine thousand dollars, and these were the ones that were over that. When I saw this paper, I thought to myself, "How could it be true? Because those all those drugs are better than Gleevec? It's impossible." So something is strange. 
<laughs> the University of the Medical School named after the Sacklers. <laughs> yes, that is. Didn't they finally strip the name? I thought they removed that. The Sacklers were the owners of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, uh, they never met somebody who didn't need an opioid, you know, and I think so they're getting themselves sued about that. And I think, but of course, you know, they still donated all the money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's not good. Oh, my goodness. I clicked on the link and now I've, okay, here we go. So I say there might be a problem with your cancer cost effectiveness analysis if from an indefinite therapy of a better dollar per quality than a matinib and for a fixed course of therapy of a better dollar per quality than rituxin, which is another really good drug. So I call shenanigans when I hear things like that. But the situation may be even worse than I described. Does anyone know the difference between efficacy and effectiveness? When you turn on the news, I always hear people saying efficacy. And then I hear say vaccine effectiveness, efficacy, effectiveness. What's the difference? Does anyone know the difference? You can type it if you don't wish to shout it out. But you can shout it out if you wish to shout it out. Efficacy is how well something works under idealized circumstances, often in a clinical trial. And effectiveness is how well something works in the messy reality of the real world. People sometimes think effectiveness can only be ascertained from observational studies, but no, 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 that's not true. You can learn effectiveness from a pragmatic randomized controlled trial. You can just randomize average people in the community and you'll find the effectiveness. You'll find the effectiveness of whatever you want to find the effectiveness of. But you can also try to infer it from well-designed observational studies. Efficacy is typically a randomized trial with a lot of inclusion criteria that's very restrictive on who they let in. Now, to my knowledge, well, I'll put it differently. I would say the vast majority of interventions, the effectiveness is less than the efficacy. The efficacy is how well it works if delivered perfectly under idealized circumstances, and the effectiveness is something that works less well in the real world. Effectiveness generally is less than efficacy. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. I can't think of one where it's the other way around. If anyone can think of one, type it in the chat. But as a general rule, effectiveness is less because people are sloppy. They don't do things exactly how they're supposed to do it. If you know what I mean. <laughs> they don't do it. They, they do things a little bit differently in the real world. It gets messy. They're non-compliant. Um, and so effectiveness can be lower. Oh, contraceptives are a good example. Yeah, I guess I'd say, I don't know the literature super well off the top of my head, but um, uh, mm, um, like when people quote you that my understanding is like IUD slash tubal ligation number one, uh, and then, you know, barrier contraception number two, uh, and, uh, and, or sorry, the, uh, no, no, number two would be like, uh, pills or depot injections, um, and then barrier contraception number three, and then maybe the bottom of the barrel would be, uh, methods like withdrawal that don't really work at all. Uh, oh, you're referring to barrier contraceptions. Yes. And I think barrier contraception is probably in the trials, um, probably better than actual real world where people may not be using them as proscribed. Um, yes. We're going to talk about that. Okay, Timothy, we talk about retrospective analysis where effectiveness can be better than in trials. Yes. Okay, yes, yes. Yes, yes. I'll make this point. I'll make this point. Um, well, I'll save it. It makes it a little complicated, but you're right. Yeah, like MD Anderson studies. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay.
do cancer drugs work as well in the real world so than they do in the trial? So that two months I gave you is from clinical trials. But the first thing you should know is the patients in the real world are different than those in trials. This is a schematic of how old patients are in the real world with cancer. 60% are over the age of 65, 70% are sorry, 40% are over the age of 70, 25% are over the age of 75. And the short bar tells you how old they are in pivotal trials submitted for the FDA approval. And the answer is less, less, less. We enroll patients on clinical trials younger and healthier than the average stated age, than the average cancer patient in America. And these drugs have real toxicity and you have to push the dose to get benefit often. So what that means is you have eroding benefits. Here's one example. On the left, you see a drug for liver cancer, serafinib, which was tested against best supportive care or sugar pill. And you can see a 2.7 month survival benefit of serafinib in liver cancer against a sugar pill. And back in the day, I heard this got a standing ovation. I can't believe it, but uh, the old saying in oncology is if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary. And here you could at least fit multiple laser pointers. So it got a standing ovation. But in my mind, 2.7 months, still not good enough. Still not good enough. On the right, however, is the same figure, treatment, no treatment in Medicare, where it's older, frailer, over the age of 65 patients. But this is real world data on the right. These are real people. And what you can see is that the gap has actually shrunk very small. Maybe it doesn't exist at all. But more telling in my mind is that the survival of a patient in the real world on the active drug serafinib is 4.5 months. It's less than half of what the survival is in the trial on sugar pill. So you mean to tell me this trial is so unrepresentative that people taking sugar pill in the trial, they live twice as long as people taking the real medicine in the real world? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's how unrepresentative the trial is. So we wrote this paper in 2016 in JAM Oncology, and here's what we argue. We say that, you know, what is a surrogate endpoint? It's an endpoint that the patient didn't know mattered until the doctor told them it mattered, like blood sugar, like cholesterol. But even overall survival in cancer drug trials is such an endpoint. Here's why. Because the purpose of drug development in the United States is to approve drugs and make average people live longer. Most cancer drugs we approve have a marginal survival benefit, just two months. And a marginal drug that works just two months in an ideal trial often has no benefit when you extrapolate it to older, frailer people with other medical problems. And therefore, survival in a trial should be thought of as a surrogate endpoint for what you actually care about survival in real life. And this is one thing that people, that irritates me when I hear people say, somebody does some intervention and they say there was, you know, there was this result, but only 40% of people complied with the intervention. Only 40% complied. If 100% of people complied, the benefit would be huge. But what I want to say is, where, where are you living that 100% of people are going to comply? Where are you living? You ran a trial in the ideal setting. You had all the money and resources that, that we wish we had in clinic. And, even, and you enrolled people who volunteered. They wanted to do it. They wanted to do it. They came out of their way to do it. And you only got 40% of people complied. Okay. You mean to think in the real world with the messy realities of life, I'm going to get 100% of people to comply? No, no, no. If anything, it's going to go down to 20%. So when people say something would work better if people just did it, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's actually kind of nonsensical to say. I mean, and here's a clear example of why. Like a diet. How, I mean, we, everyone, I think in America struggles with weight. I mean, a lot of people struggle with weight, you know. And, and imagine telling the patient, you know, what's the, what diet should I be on, doc? Like, well, just don't eat anything. If you just don't eat anything, you will lose weight eventually. 
But then the patient comes back and says, I couldn't sustain it because I got hungry. And then you say, well, not my fault. If you had just followed my plan of not eating anything at all, you would have lost weight. And of course, the whole point of a, of a, of a diet that people find acceptable and that quote unquote actually works is something that not only has less calories, but also is something people can live with and gives them satiety, etc. And so I think we should be very careful about saying things would have worked but for the patient, if only they, you know. And similarly, we have to be very careful about saying the cancer drug, the reason it's not working so well is that the patients are older and frailer. Who are, who are you trying to take care of? Those are the people in America. So you need to make a drug that can work in those people because those are, those are Americans. So go back to the drawing board if you have to and come up with some new medicine because the one you got don't work so well when you give it to an older, frailer person. Okay. Here's a paper we published in JAMA Internal Medicine. For a while, it was on track to be my most cited paper, but then Allison published something different that's got a lot more citations, so sorry. Sham, sorry. It's not going to be number one here. Okay, here's what we looked at. These are 10 companies that brought a single cancer drug to market. Now, they're actually kind of, it's kind of unusual because sometimes Pfizer brings a cancer drug to market, but Pfizer has so many drugs, it's very hard to know how much did they spend on that cancer drug versus other drugs, blah, blah, blah. But if you only had, you know, if you only had one drug come to market, these companies, if you added up every dollar they spent, that's money that they're spending that ultimately led one drug to come to market. So these are 10 companies that brought one drug each to market. They each had many drugs in the pipeline. You know, Ariad had three. This company had 11. This company had five. You know, so they were trying, but only one succeeded. And what we did was we added up all the money they spent. And we actually gave him 7% per year lost cost of capital. What do I mean by that? When, when, a, when somebody is developing a drug and they spend, let's say in 2015, um, you know, a million dollars, we don't just give him a million dollars plus inflation. We give him, we imagine, what if they took that money and they invested it in the stock market? And what if they had a good return on an investment of 7%? So we give him credit for lost earnings on capital. And when you do this, and then we also tabulated how much money they made since they got the approval. And here's what we found. Oh, what is this? No, where, where did the slide go? <laughs> here's what we found. Yes, here's what we found. We found that the R&D spending to bring a drug to market averaged about $775 million. And the revenue post-approval averaged $7 billion. So, you know, what does this mean? It means that if you are a company that has many, many drugs in the pipeline, you get one to market, you're going to make a huge return on investment. And this is actually an understatement because they probably made even more than since, um, since uh, this was an early look in their life cycle. They have many more years of patent life. All right. So what have we covered so far? I think we've covered some of the main points I wanted to convey to you. Maybe I'll talk about this last thing. I guess the points I wanted to convey to you thus far are number one, uh, the cost to, well, one, we could talk about the cost to manufacture the drug. The cost to manufacture a small molecule drug is usually a few hundred dollars a year. So these costs are not justified by the cost of manufacturing. The cost to manufacture a, a, a uh, antibody is several orders of magnitude higher, but still the average sales price is maybe fivefold, tenfold higher than the cost of manufacturing. 
So when you sell a unit commodity of a product, you are making money by selling that product. But of course, just like the person who made the first iPhone, you had to spend money to get to, to, to develop the iPhone. And so you should get credit for that. But when we look at R&D spending, you know, I think generously, I think it's a billion dollars per drug. Now, there are other estimates that are hand in hand with the industry that say it's $2 billion. But even if you held that view, they're still making a ton of money because I'll show you this figure. This figure shows the average amount of money a drug makes when it's on the market by year since product launch. And they typically have like 12 years of exclusivity. And this is a log scale. And this is 10 billion. And the median here is about $12 billion. So what it means is the average anti-cancer drug in its life cycle is going to make $12 billion. And I told you that the estimates vary, but they go between one and two billion to develop the drug in the first place. So drug development is very lucrative. You know, um, the cost may be that some products don't come to market, but each year that's you know the bar is getting even lower. Okay, I want to show you one last thing that I thought was very interesting. A few years ago, there was an article in the BMJ, and it said, "Did you know?" That when the drug company sells you the drug, they sell you it by vial. But you have to give the dose based on, you know, body surface area or something like that. And so if you took an average woman who was getting this dose, the typical patient dose would be 442 milligrams, but the vials are only 100. And so what that means is you have to use four full vials, and then you have to draw 42 milligrams from the last vial and throw away 58 milligrams. And this said that but the cost of that medicine you throw away because you can't reuse it by some of these pharmaceutical rules, that's going to be $70 million. So if you want a way to save money, you should capture the waste money. Like you can't bill us for money that for a drug we're throwing down the drain. Okay. And they say this, how can we stop the waste? Regularly and systematically discarding expensive drugs is antithetical to efforts to reduce spending on healthcare that provide no value. Policymakers should therefore explore approaches that would reduce or eliminate paying for leftover drug. And this became some CMS um, uh, panel and they thought about it for a while. Okay, then I noticed that there was a rapid response and this was by a medical student at OHSU at the time. Now he's, I think, a GI fellow at Stanford, but I saw this and I read it and I was like, wow. That's a third-year medical student. This is what a third-year medical student writes in response to this paper. Quote, I suspect the cost savings proposed here are grossly overstated due to the simple fact that the cost to manufacture the drugs is essentially unrelated to the cost of the drug. The drug companies are selling their intellectual property and pricing the drugs to provide a certain number of treatments based on what the market will bear. This is a cute paper. But the prices for treatments would simply rise in the years it would take to establish systems to reduce waste. Waste should be reduced when possible, but this article is hyperbole. Wow. Isn't that... <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> That's really good. Third-year student said that. And I actually analogize it by saying it's like, um, you know, when you go to the movie theater and, they buy, and you buy a gallon of soda, they charge you like $9. How much is the soda itself? It's like three pennies. And, you know, you can establish an elaborate system where whatever soda you don't drink, you pass on to someone else and you find a way to separate the soda. But, you know, if you started to do that, they would just crank up their soda price to $15 and tell you, go to hell. You know, you have to pay up because this is the only place you can get the soda. And so they have a captive market and that's why they can pretty much charge what they want. And I don't think wastage was going to be the right answer. All right. I will stop there and take questions.